Job is living his best life. A healthy and successful businessman with a loving family when everything is suddenly taken away. His oxen, donkeys, and camels are all stolen or slaughtered by bandits. His sheep all perish in a mysterious fire. And there's a terrible incident, a freak accident, as a roof collapses, kills all of his children. Not long afterwards, he develops a crippling illness that leaves his entire body covered in excruciating sores. The book of Job is, at its heart, a philosophical argument against the prevailing wisdom of the time, which held that bad things only happen to people who deserve them. Of course, we know better. Bad things happen to everyone. But Job is also a case study in trauma. How does, how does a person who has been so thoroughly destroyed come back from that? And is it still possible, even in the wake of trauma, to find a happy ending? The reading is from Job 42, verses 10 through 17. And the Lord restored the, for the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then there came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before. And they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter of days of Job, more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven daughters, no, seven sons, and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children four generations, and Job died old and full of days. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Children are resilient, it's true. But when you're a little kid, surrounded by all these grown-ups who are twice your height, it's genuinely terrifying when they turn on you. As a boy, getting screamed at by an adult was about the worst thing I could imagine. Strangers were the worst. You know, grown men and women who'd yell at you for wandering behind a shop counter or for touching something fragile. Teachers weren't much better, though at least you had some kind of relationship with them. Even so, 
some of them would start shouting about the most arbitrary offenses. So I always felt like I was walking on eggshells at school, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Now that said, I was completely unprepared for the tongue lashing I received one day in the sixth grade. Our teacher had sent me on an errand to the front office to retrieve the mail. And I gladly obliged, you know, eager to stretch my legs and get out of class for a few minutes. And as I made my way back to the classroom, I glanced through the envelopes and noticed that one of them was addressed to a boy in my class named John. So when I returned to the class, uh, as I was walking to the teacher's desk, I started to hand the letter to John. Oh, here you go, John. I said, this is for you. Nothing could have prepared me for the explosion of wrath that tore through me. How dare you! My sixth grade teacher screamed, leaping to her feet, her usual warmth erased in an instant. Startled, I threw the mail in the air, the envelope sailing every which way. Don't you ever give someone the mail! She howled. Don't you ever! Trembling, I knelt down and picked up the envelopes that I dropped and brought them sheepishly to her desk. Glaring at me, she took the mail from my shaking hands, glanced through the envelopes and announced, John, this one's for you. <laughs> Friends, whatever ambitions I'd harbored about becoming a postal worker when I grew up were shattered that day. Even now, 30 years later, I can't go near a mailbox without hearing those words echoing in my ears. Don't you ever give someone the mail. Don't you ever. People raise their voices all the time, of course. But it seems a bit more frequent these days, doesn't it? A viral video has been circulating lately, a, a video of a grown man in California yelling at kids for wearing a mask in the parking lot of a local shopping plaza, sporting a t-shirt emblazoned with the words, your mask makes you look stupid. He was filmed pushing adolescents and sticking his head into car windows to berate people. Uh, where'd you get your mask? He asks one young teen as she walks by. The stupid store? The stupid store. It's probably the dumbest insult of all time. But if some weird dude yelled that at me in a parking lot when I was little, I probably would have started crying. And nowadays, this sort of acting out has become all too common. I mean, we had people right here in town calling elementary school kids Nazis for wearing a mask to school. Airlines have had to stop selling alcohol on flights because so many people have been getting violent with flight attendants who have had to literally duct tape some of them to their seats. People are freaking out at the fast food drive through screaming at teenagers who work there for minimum wage because they didn't get their chicken nuggets. And just last week, a melee erupted at a Golden Corral buffet because they ran out of steak. It's true, people started throwing chairs, fists rolling around on the stained carpet like it was some kind of bar fight in a Wild West saloon. Showdown at the Golden Corral. <laughs> It would almost be funny if it weren't completely insane. I don't know, maybe just me, but it feels like people are slowly becoming unglued. 
I was at a meeting a couple weeks ago, not a, not a church meeting, it was something extracurricular, but you know, one guy stood up and started screaming at everybody and stormed out. I know this man, he's a good guy, you know, but like everyone else these days, the stress is getting to him. If I'm being honest, it's, it's getting to me a little bit too. I think we have to acknowledge that we have been collectively traumatized these past couple of years. We surpassed 900,000 deaths from COVID this week here in the States, losing thousands of people a day. Now some will point out this is only about a third of 1% of the population, echoing Joseph Stalin when he said that one death is a tragedy, a million deaths are a statistic. Still, that doesn't account for the rest of the illness, suffering, grief, that people are still living with. This would be bad enough if that's all that it was, but the stress provoked by all of the arguing, the political turmoil, the economic toll, and the drastic changes to our daily lives have all contributed to a zeitgeist of trauma. And let's face it, we don't really know how to deal with it, personally or collectively. Now, for my part, I can't honestly say that I've ever been traumatized in a personal sense. I've had my share of hard knocks, you know, I've been screamed at, insulted, dumped, robbed, betrayed, stabbed in the back, literally stabbed in the back with an X-Acto knife. But you know, I've never been in an abusive relationship, I've never fought in a war, I've been shot at. I've never been hospitalized with deadly illness. I've never been arrested or tortured. I've never been in a train wreck or a plane crash. And while I've seen children die, I've never had to mourn my own. Yeah, I'm suffering from the same collective and cultural trauma as everyone else, but I've never really been traumatized. Not like some of you, not like Joe. In a pretty short span of time, Job loses everything. His livelihood is destroyed, his children all perish, his body is ravaged by an especially painful disease. And having been thoroughly devastated, Job does what folks ought to do. He reaches out for help. You know, he tries to talk to his wife and his closest friends. A host of characters who turn out to be profoundly lacking in empathy. His friends keep telling him that he must have done something to deserve his suffering. And his wife, dealing with her own issues, tells Job to curse God and die. Not very supportive. Job feels abandoned, even by God, especially by God, whom Job feels has painted a target on his back. Why have you made me your target? Job cries out. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. One of my professors at uh, Yale, Dr. Miroslav Volf, has written extensively about trauma. Having grown up as the son of a Pentecostal minister in Croatia under a communist regime that regarded Christianity with a great deal of suspicion, he knows what it's like to be targeted for abuse. His father was arrested and tortured. And as a young conscript in the army, Miroslav was also arrested and interrogated at length about his father's activities and his own Christian beliefs. 
He writes about the role that memory plays in our trauma and how it has the power to both exacerbate our pain as well as heal it. And in order to heal, he says that we must remember truthfully, hopefully, and responsibly. Victims have an interest in enhancing the suffering they experience, he admits. But I had a responsibility to tell my story rightly, or I could wrong another person. You can't forgive or apologize unless you have told the story rightly. Now for Miroslav, that other person is a man that he refers to only as Captain G, his interrogator, whom he has worked his whole life to forgive. There is a tendency to being completely absorbed by suffering, he once said in an interview, to think that the entirety of the identity of the perpetrator consists in having inflicted suffering on you, that the entirety of your own identity consists in having suffered that injury. But as Miroslav reminds us, the good news of the gospel is that we are not what we have done or what other people have done to us, he writes. We are what God thinks we are. And as God relates to us. I would add personally that other people are vital to healing from trauma too. We experience God's love most profoundly in community. We heal, I think, when we can learn to trust other people again be loved again, to love again. That's what Job does in the end. He surrounds himself with people who actually love and support him. They showed him sympathy and comforted him, the scripture tells us. And only then, with their help, are Job's fortunes ultimately restored. I want to be clear here, the pain does not go away. It's not as though Job can simply replace his lost children with new ones. The pain doesn't go away. The memories don't go away. But he does find healing. While the pain does not go away, perhaps the fear that it could happen again could. I'm not sure it's accurate to say that Job has a happy ending. But he does experience a new beginning. I'd mentioned a few months ago that my wife and I began taking in foster dogs, golden retrievers specifically, who have been abandoned or abused or suffered from some kind of trauma. We just welcomed our second foster dog, an enormous golden retriever named Catherine. Weird name for a dog. <laughs> Um, especially since we call her Cat for short, which is even more confusing. Cat <laughs> is eight years old. She spent her entire life in captivity on a farm in Iowa where she was bred over and over again for all of those years. Most dogs are only bred for three or four years, so you can imagine the toll that this took on her physically and emotionally, especially in the absence of freedom or playtime or love in general. Cat is scared of us. 
She spends her days on an ottoman tucked into the corner. And whenever I try to go near her just to, to pet her, she, she backs up against the wall. She doesn't wag her tail. She doesn't play. She's just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Waiting for someone to scream at her or hit her or put her back in her cage. We've seen some progress though. A fair bit even just this week. She'll come down from the ottoman to eat if no one is around, which she wouldn't do before. She's going outside more often. And just the other day she started to imitate our other dog, Furley, as they both bounded through the snow in the backyard. She's even begun to bark at people walking their dogs past, which is, a, which is a good sign. I hope that if we keep loving her, she will come to realize that she's finally safe and that her long ordeal is over. It's hard to imagine when you're struggling that the fear will ever go away. It's hard to believe in a happy ending. But healing is possible. New beginnings are possible. We don't have to be defined by our trauma, but rather by God's love and the love of community and the safety that we find in one another when we have finally arrived home.